Welcome to the weekly message from Upper Room Community Church in Vaughan. We hope that this message will help you grow in your faith and provide practical ways to strengthen your relationships. For more information, visit us at upperroom.ca. Our passage for today comes from 2 Corinthians chapter 5, and it's verses 14 through 21. For God's love compels us, because we are convinced that one died for all, and therefore all died. And he died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. So from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old has gone. The new is here. All this is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. God made him who has no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. This is the word of God. We're, uh, we're coming to the end of a series that we're calling Rooted, and uh, if you've been with our church through that time, you know that um, it's based on uh, a metaphor that the scriptures use all the time to describe our lives. And as I've said to you many times, one of the reasons that I love uh, the Bible is that it explains life to me. It helps me understand myself and God and the world around me. And the scripture uses the metaphor of a tree to actually describe our lives, which is very helpful because it explains why as people, we know that we're meant to be people who are moving, people who are growing. We know that um, we can say, well, I'm not who I once was, but I'm not yet who I want to be. And I want to be someone who's actually growing stronger, who's growing more stable in life. And the idea of a tree growing means that it has, it has roots that grow down into looking for water, looking for kind of deep life that give it strength and vitality. But then it also grows up and out. And we know, as I said to you, like in our most noble moments as people, we know actually we're not just meant to live and be strong and stable for ourselves, that we're just kind of like a, tr- a fruit tree provides or is a blessing to every living thing around it, that we actually, as individuals and certainly as communities, are meant to be a blessing to people around us, that we're actually meant to grow. And this happens when each of us grow and become more of who God has made us to be. Now, this whole growth process, we said, actually begins with knowing who God is, and that the more we know who God is, not as in kind of head knowledge, as if you're interested in it or you're not, but this idea of being in relationship with God. And I know for, for many of us, maybe even if you've grown up in a church or religious context, that idea of having a relationship with God might seem like a foreign thing to you. That No, that actually God has made us to be in relationship with him, to know him and to have that knowledge and that relationship transform our lives. Every relationship we have has an impact on us, changes us. And to have a relationship with God, one where our lives are really rooted in who he is and his love for us and his purpose for our lives that out of that comes life, out of that comes growth. And we've been exploring through the Rooted series, what does it mean to actually know God? That God is the one that actually is behind every other thing that we're looking for, that everything that we're looking for, that as one person said, that we have a God-shaped hole in our hearts that nothing else can actually fill, that we were meant to actually find deep fulfillment in relationship with him. 
to understand who God is, to actually understand that there also is an enemy who's coming against us, trying to block um, our, our growth goals that the people were meant to be, that also there's, there's sin and there's junk in our own lives, decisions we make, but then there's also stuff around us and there isn't actually an, an enemy of our souls who's trying to destroy us and get in the way of growth. We said that growth happens when we begin to understand, okay, who has God made us to be? How do I know his word and, and learn to talk with him in prayer? And that makes me a fruitful person, someone who actually is a blessing to other people. And in the last few weeks, we've kind of transitioned to said that, you know what, like, like growth and stability and, and strength is not just for us, but that we were meant to be a blessing to other people. And that looks like being a community that is willing to serve other people. We talked about how the fact that Jesus, though he came as a king, lived as a servant. And then he said to the church, church you're going to live not as kings, but as servants. And that every time the church has gotten that wrong and acted like kings, they've messed up the gospel. They've messed up the world around them. Every time the, world acts, or the church acts like servants, it blesses the world around them. And that we're meant to be serving people. Last week, Mark talked about financially that if we've been blessed, we've been blessed to be a blessing, that the money we have in our lives is not to be hung on to for ourselves, but actually to be given away, to be invested in things that will actually return valuable um, uh, things in, in how we invest. And so we're meant to give our lives to serve other people. We're meant to give our money to serve other people. And today, we're actually talking about the fact that we were meant to tell others about the love of Jesus. Now, even as we talk about this, uh, I think people who would consider themselves Christians and, and those who would say, well, I'm not a Christian, all of us are uncomfortable with this idea of telling other people what we believe. We kind of feel like it's like, oh, well, I don't, as, you know, people say, well, I kind of like, you know, I like faith, I think it's a good thing, I just don't like when other people try to convince me of their faith. Like, that's when it all goes sideways. Or maybe you're, you're someone who's a Christian, you say, yeah, I just, it's, it's personal for me, it's private, I don't like talking to other people about it. Or if you're not a Christian, you say, yeah, I don't like when other people talk to me about it. It's like these I don't know, we've been in our, our neighborhood for 11 years, and from day one to now, we have people regularly coming to try to sell us water heaters. And the, the, they get stranger, the visits get stranger. Like last, uh, a few months ago, there was a knock on the door, and I looked through, there's a glass uh, on, our, on our door, and I can't, there's nobody there. I thought it was my kids, because they love to come out, ring the doorbell, run away. So I open the door, and there's this guy up against the wall of my house, like this. And he doesn't move, he's, he's gonna talk to me from here. And he starts introducing himself, and he has, you know, one of those lanyards with, from a company I've never recognized before. And then, and then he says, oh yeah, and I can't remember the guy's name was, Joe or something. He's in training. Joe's over here, like we have pillars in our house, and he's behind the pillar. And so then, so I try to look to see him, and as I look, he goes like this. And so, so one guy's up against the wall, and Joe's behind the pillar, and they're going to try to sell me a water heater. Now, of course, they're not selling anything, because they say, oh no, no, we're not selling anything. Everybody on my street, apparently, already, there's a, a sheet full of names. Am I the only one this has happened to? And then I see them, I said, you know, you're not the first person to come. And they look at me like I'm shocked. There's like 20 companies that come, and each of you is different. And all of you says, oh, you don't want to sell anything, but you want to see my water heater. Like, I, I don't think I want you to see, I've never even seen my water heater. I don't think I want you to come in and go look at it. So <clears throat> sometimes people can just feel like, well, that's, that's what happens. That's this awkward dynamic when someone's trying to tell me and convince me and sell me something. And so people who are Christians say, well, I don't like that. I don't, I don't want to sell anybody anything, and people aren't Christians say, yeah, I really just wish religions would stop doing that. And we, we point, actually, to religious fanaticism as one of the evidences of why this, where we should never do this. You know, and, and what ISIS is doing in the world right now is, is an extreme example of when we say, especially in North America, we can say this, see, this is what happens when people are too committed to their beliefs. They go crazy. They do crazy things. 
And what, what they're trying to do, they have an agenda, and so they don't care, and they're willing to do stuff, and they end up hurting other people because they're trying to convince them to believe. And they believe that what they believe is the only thing worth believing, and so religious fanaticism leads to major problems. And so in North America, we think, well, that's not a good thing. That, that fanaticism is bad, and, and the solution is moderation. That if we could just kind of have everything in moderation, realize, okay, that's good for you, but that's good for you, and what's good for me, and let's not try to, because when we do, we become like that. Now, there's a problem with that. Like, ISIS has been called, you know, by the President of the United States as the face of evil, <clears throat> and I understand, and I believe, and I agree that it is evil, but it's not the only face of evil in the world. In fact, North America's religion, if you will, what we are fanatical about is not religion. We feel like we've, we've come to, and, and certainly in Canada we call ourselves a post-Christian nation, and we have many people who come and live in this country, and so we say, look, don't dial up your religious beliefs and your fanaticism. Dial it down. Just be moderate. It's okay what you have, but if you're not moderate, that's when we get into trouble. But actually, that's, that's not totally true because what we are fanatical about is just something else. We are fanatical uh, about other things, not religion. But other stuff, because everybody is fanatical about something. In fact, the, the phrase is what, um, you know, where we get the term fans from. And in fact, in North America, we are fanatical about leisure. We're fanatical about sports. We're fanatical about entertainment. We're fanatical about vacations. We're fanatical about money. Those are the things we spend most of our time talking about, the things we spend most of our lives going after, the things we all agree are worth pursuing, we're willing to make sacrifices for. And in fact, our love of leisure perpetuates some of the problems that religious fanaticism creates because we say, you know what, that's bad, but I don't care. Sometimes it reaches a level, like it is right now, where we start to care. But you know that this has been going on forever, all over the place. And only because CNN has have cameras on it do we care. But most of the time, we're just saying, just live and let live and leave me alone because I have my own stuff that I want to deal with. Because we're fanatical about enjoying life. And we tell everyone, why are you so crazy about faith and religion? Just dial it down and be like us and enjoy life. And yet part of our passivity is the fact that many of us have the power to do stuff about the stuff that's going on in the world, and we don't do anything about it because we're fanatical about something else. The other problem is that, truthfully, terrorism and religious fanaticism is not the primary killer of the world's people. In, in 2001, there were about 3,000 people killed in the 9-11 attacks but there were about five times as many people killed by Americans that year through homicide. Like, the, the problem is not other people from other countries killing the people in your own country. We kill each other. Homicide is a greater issue and threat to humanity than terrorism is right now. There were more women killed by their partners in the years between 2001 and 2012 than in the Iraqi war and the Afghanistan war. Twice as many. Not by terrorists but by people they were in love with. So we have to start to go, wait, wait, is that really the problem? Is, is religious fanaticism the problem, or is fanaticism the problem? We look at a movement like ISIS and we think, well, I'd never want that kind of laws in our country because those laws are oppressive to women, and many of them are. And yet what our country seem to be fanatical about is the porn industry. The porn industry makes more money than Major League Baseball, the NFL, and the NBA combined. Hollywood releases 500 films a year. The porn industry releases 13,000. Makes more money than Google, Microsoft, and Apple combined. If you want to say we're fanatical about anything, it's that. And what is that industry built on? That women are commodities, able to be bought, sold, and used. So we can't quickly say, well, I don't want that fanaticism here because they oppress women. So do we. The problem is not religious fanaticism. The problem is we are all fanatical. And so the question is this, what are we fanatical 
about? What are we willing to give our money to, make sacrifices for, be single-minded about? See, if you look at the history of the church, the church, when it was first birthed by Jesus in the first century, became one of the most positive influences on the world as it is that we know. It's one of, in fact, probably the most compelling reasons to believe that Jesus was who he said he was, that he did in fact rise from the dead, because how else did these people who were not even willing to stand with him by his death suddenly become willing to die for what they believed in, which was the fact that Jesus was God, come to show us the love of God. I was listening to sports radio this week, and they were, you know, they, it has invaded, what's going on in this world has invaded everywhere. And, they, and the, the two guys who were talking in the morning show just stopped, and they said, what do you do if you have a movement of people who are willing to do crazy things for what they believe in, who do not care what other people think about them, and are actually willing to die for what they believe in? You cannot stop those people. That's what they said. And there was just kind of about 10 seconds of silence. They did not want to, he said, but this, I was thinking, that was the early church. And yet they were not committed to world domination, to making others believe what they were, they were willing to do crazy things for love. They were willing, they didn't care whether thought that they were crazy for believing that a man had died and come back to life. And they were willing to die caring for sick people that other people wouldn't care for. And I said to you, that's how the first hospital started, was from the early church. And even the Roman emperors who were against the Christian movement said, we cannot help but notice that they care better for our sick people than we do. That's what they were willing to die for. It was not a movement of religious superiority or Jesus is better than anyone else. They did believe it, but they were willing to die for it. And they said, if Jesus came to earth and loved and healed and forgave people, that's what we are a movement about. The, re- the early church was so fanatical about that. And the more fanatical they were, the better off the world was around them. When the church historically has gotten less fanatical about Jesus and more concerned about power and politics and who's right and who's wrong, that's when the church starts to negatively affect the world around us. And so as we look at Scripture today and say, okay, well, what does it mean actually to be followers of Jesus? It is actually to become, I believe, my theory is that I want to put in front of you is that religious fanaticism is not the problem, but that if the people in the world, the 2.2 billion people or whatever, who say they believe that Jesus is Lord, actually need to become more fanatical about their faith and not less. Because the more fanatical they'll be, the more they'll be like Jesus. And the world needs more of Jesus. Even if you don't agree that he had risen from the dead, even if you don't think he's the son of God, nobody looks back on Jesus and said, man, he messed up the world a lot. That's why the church actually needs to be more like Jesus, more fanatical. The less fanatical the church has been, the more of a mess it's been to itself and the world around us. And that's why in that scripture passage that Malcolm read for you this morning from 2 Corinthians, and Paul is talking to the church, he says this uh, at verse 14, for Christ's what? Love compels. There's something inside of us that has so gripped our hearts that we, are, we don't care what people think about us. That we're willing even to die for this message of love and grace. The message, what is the message? He says this. If anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old is gone, the new is here. Here's what we're willing to die for. Here's what we're so compelled by is that in Jesus, all of us get a restart. In Jesus, all that we are that is broken and sinful, and we know every one of us is, 
That doesn't just need to be covered up and pretended that it's not there and hopefully try to be a better person. No, in Christ, because just as Christ died, he says we all die and get a new start. All of this junk in our lives, all the things we wish we could change, whatever, can be washed away and freedom can come. That's what we're, that's what we're so compelled by. We are so convinced of this that we cannot keep it to ourselves. The news is too that the old is gone, the new has come. And then he says, all of this comes from God who has reconciled us. Okay, so this is a relational word. I know it's kind of a big religious word, but essentially it's probably one of the words that most accurately describes what the story of Scripture, I have my Bible here, it's my phone here. That's kind of sacrilegious, isn't it? That the story of Scripture is about is about God bringing us back. Reconciliation means to be, to, you know, to be reconciled, to come back. It's this idea that you and I have left home in a sense. We were meant to be in relationship with God, listening to him, loving him, receiving his love, but that we left home by sin. That sin just basically says, I don't need you. I'm going to do life my own way. We live as independent people. And God, through Christ, Paul says, was bringing the world back to himself, that we have been brought back into a relationship with a God who loves us, who needs nothing from us and wants everything for us. This, and then he says, this is the message that we have. Come back to God. Come home. The home you are looking for under every other rock that you turn over. Looking for fulfillment, looking for sexual satisfaction, looking for a purpose in life, looking for a sense of stability and security, looking for forgiveness, looking for approval. Whatever it else you are looking for, it's because you are not at home. You are an orphan. You are a child of God acting like an orphan. Come home. That's what reconciliation is. And he says, this is what we are so compelled to tell others because we see it all over the place and we know we ourselves were two orphans far from home. And God brought us back in Christ. And if he's done that for us, he can do that for you. So This was the message that gripped the early church. And Paul said, it compels us. We are so filled with what we have received, we cannot help but tell others. And he used this as a word to kind of describe. And he says, this is what we see our lives as. We are ambassadors. Now, it's an English word, and most of you know what that means. But it's not commonplace for us. What is an ambassador? An ambassador is someone in a foreign land representing the place of the person from which they have come, right? They are someone who is sent into a place that is not their home, representing the place they have come from, presumably with a good message, presumably with the benefit of the place where they have been sent in mind. And he says, we are ambassadors. And he uses this phrase, which I so love. He says, God is making his appeal to you through us. This is the picture of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. It says, God came to you and loved you, forgave you, and has brought you home. And then he sends you out again and says, go, you're not the only people who need my love. You're not the only people who need forgiveness and grace. You're not the only people who have wandered far from home. So now I'm sending you out and you are going to go and I'm going to make my appeal to the rest of the world through you. You are going to be my voice of love, grace, forgiveness, reconciliation of new life, of restart. This is the message I've given you. You are my ambassadors. You're going to go and represent me. A good ambassador has to know where they've come from, who they represent. He says, you know me, you know me, I'm your father. This is the love that I have for you. Now go into the world. And that's the message that you have. Be reconciled to God. Do you understand? God is not counting people's sins against them. Do you know, do you know how many people, how, how many of us, 
maybe growing up or maybe even today or maybe the people you know have such a distorted picture of who God is because of what the church has done to them, because of maybe what their parents did or because of someone who said they were a follower of God or maybe religious fanaticism gone sideways. We are Christ's ambassadors sent out into the world with a message that says God is not counting your sin against you. You have a restart, but the only place to find it is in the one who died and came to life again. You cannot make yourself better, no, no amount of education, no amount of goodwill, no amount of trying to make the world a better place. Are we not, in North America, in a sense, at the height of altruism? Are we not, you know, thinking, oh, we should all make the world a better place, we should all do better, be better? Is it really? Can education solve things? Some of the most educated people in the world are making just as many bad decisions. The whole financial crisis that nearly sewered the United States and America and, and Canada in 2008 was made by some of the most educated people in the world. Education's not the answer. Goodwill is not the answer. Money is not the answer. Until hearts change, the exchange of money will not change. And the message we have into the world is saying, find this in God. It is not a message of superiority. It is not a do this or else. It is a message that simply says, I understand. I was far from home. I had stuff in my life that I could not erase by myself. I could not forgive myself. No matter how much approval I get, it's not enough. I found it in God. That is the message that I have. And then God says, now go. You know this firsthand. You're my ambassadors in the world around us. I want you to think about this for a moment. To be an ambassador means that you are a sent one. A sent one. That, that is a follower of Christ. Just as God has sent his son to you, the son sends you to the world, to the people around you, to the people in your family, to the people in your neighborhood, to the people in your workplace, to the people in your school to whatever circle you have. You are a sent one. God has sent Jesus to you. Jesus sends you to the world. And, and if you're a Christian, that is who you are. And if you're not a Christian, you should just be happy that that's what Christians are supposed to be. You wish the 2.2 billion people in the world who said they were Christians actually lived like that, that there would be more Jesus in the world around not superior truth or religious holy wars. But the man who came and changed the world and turned humility into a virtue and made the symbol of death a symbol of life and said, if you really want to change the world, don't be first, be last. Don't be a king, be a servant. The one who came to give his life away. The whole world should want more people to be like that. And Paul says, as Christians, that is what we are. We are a sent one. And you are a sent one because God sent one to you, right? If you're a follower of Jesus, why are you? You find God on your own? No, God sent someone to you. Yes, he sent his son, but maybe, maybe it was a parent. Maybe it was a mom or a dad or both. Maybe it was a family member. Maybe it was a friend that you went to school with. Maybe it was a work colleague. If it was somebody on TV one night that you were watching sharing their story of Jesus. God sent someone to you. That's why you're following him today. 
And, and you say, no, well, VJ, well, he didn't just send one. He sent this person, this person. Oh, wait, he sent five or six people to you? You're lucky. You're a sent one because God sent one to you. You know the message, the life-transforming message of love and grace and forgiveness and restart that there is in Jesus Christ because Christ sent someone to you. To be a sent one remembers, oh yeah, this is how God plans to change the world. That we are, in a sense, Jesus with skin on to other people. We say, God, I can't see God. Where is he? How do we know God is loving? Because the ones who worship God are loving people. We are sent ones because God sent one to us. Now, I want you to think about this for a moment. Um, we are connected to a woman named Lizette Lavoie, who's a, a remarkable woman. She's a French-Canadian woman, was in Canada till the age of 40. She was teaching, then decided, you know what? I'm going to go to Africa. She went to French-speaking Guinea in West Africa. It was actually just, just to south of Mali, right, which got hit a couple of days ago with a terrorist attack. We got connected with Lizette about four years ago, and she has been in Guinea for 22 years. And we discovered that she had partnered with another Guinean couple, and they, were, they had started, they'd start taking in orphans into their home, or people either who were in, uh, infected with AIDS or affected by AIDS. Either their parents had died or they were just, um, because they were HIV, the, the family they were in didn't have the money to give them meds to care for them. Or there were people whose parents really are, are unfit to look after them, or sometimes the babies just show up at the police station and the police would call them. So they started taking them into their home. And then one after another after another came, and they started saying, well, we need more space. And so they started renting a bigger apartment. And then we, we found out what was going on, and we uh, were able to, with them at the right time that God brought the rest of that apartment open, we were able to give some money so they could rent the whole place. And over the last few years, we've given thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars. And the amount of money that they've raised is to build a new orphanage for them. Now, a little while ago, Lizette came back because of the Ebola crisis that was kind of ripping through West Africa. And she came back because our mission organization, our denomination said, we, we got to pull our missionaries out. Like, this is a dangerous place right now. So she was here, and we met, and she said, Vijay, i got to go back. Like, I, I, don't, I, I wasn't made to be here. I, I need to be there. Like, this, the, the people of Guinea need me now more than ever. I don't need to be here. I don't care whether I get sick. We said, Lizette, the, you can't have medical coverage. You go back. She's like, I don't care. This is what I have lived for. She said, we have all this money that we've raised. We have baby formula. We have food. We have, and these, these kids need me there. So I went with her and met with the, the, you know, the head of our mission agency. Of course, they were just concerned for her well-being. And she said, no, I don't care. I want to go back. And they said, okay, well, you know, we can't get medical coverage for her. She said, that's fine. I'm going back. And so she went. And we had to pull our, uh, the plug on our team going there the day they were going to go because they had finally had a case show up in Conakry of a bowl. And so we said, okay, so we're in waiting mode right now. But supposing we were to get to send a team again there. And they went there, came to the airport, and went to her house. And she was sitting in her house, and she was knitting. I don't know if she likes knitting, but say she's watching TV. There's no electricity, so she wouldn't be doing that. Uh, whatever. She's having lunch with some friends. I said, Lizette, how are you doing? Oh, great, great. How's the center? How's the Kids in Crisis Center? Well, I don't know. What do you mean you don't know? Well, I haven't been for a few months. You haven't been? No. I just, I've taken up some other hobbies, and there's some great new restaurants in my neighborhood, so that's kind of where I'm going. Yeah, I love the people of Guinea. I'm like, yeah, 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 that's good. But what, you know, what are you doing for them? We, remember, your storehouse in the back has all this food and baby formula. Oh, yeah. I was wondering what that was for. We, you would be stupefied. 
didn't you come here for the, like, you came with armloads, you have stuff that those people need, and you're sitting here? You haven't been to the orphanage in six months? We would think that was crazy. Why? Because their whole purpose for being there was that. And yet I was reading this this week, I felt like God saying to me, it's kind of what you're like. There was a world around you that is dying of selfishness. That is dying because they're crushed under the weight of guilt for sins that they've done that they can't get rid of. And the people around them won't forgive them so they don't think there is forgiveness. Or there's people around them who are dying inside because they won't forgive another person. There's people around them dying inside because they're turning over rock after rock after rock thinking, this will fill the void in my soul. This will make me happy. This will make me happy. And you're sitting there, you have a drink with them, you work with them, you go out for lunch with them, you play sports with them, and you don't see anything. Isn't that a bit crazy? The Apostle Paul says to the church, we have the message of life. And we are first and foremost sent ones because Christ sent one, two, five, ten, twenty to us. And so what I wanted to do for us this morning is just to pray for you. Before we do that, I want to give you a little prayer that you can pray. And this is a prayer that I've started to pray. It's short enough that you could pray it every day if you want it. If I'm a sent one because God sent one to me, here's the prayer. Jesus, which one are you sending me to today? You and I don't need to save the world and change the world. But there's people, there's individuals in your life that God has actually sent you to. They're the people you work with, the people you have meals with, the people you live beside, the people you play hockey with, the people that you hang around with. That there are people in your life that God has sent you to, and so every day we just need to say, okay, Jesus, who are you sending me to today? Maybe it's somebody you know you're going to see that day. Maybe it's someone you're not planning on running into. But Jesus, who are you sending me today? If I'm a sent one, what's today going to be like? Remind me of the love that you have for me and the grace that you have for me and how I have, have, a, I have a new life in you. Who are you sending me to today? Now, why would we do this? This is a scary thing, right? To pray this, to be willing to, to go and, and say to someone we love, look, I, I love you too much just to say nothing. You know, and I'm not saying I know everything, but, but I love you, and I've seen what's going on in your life, and can I just tell you, there is hope. There is forgiveness. There is a restart. There is a change. There is actually something better than the thing you're running after, which is the next thing you've run after and the next thing you've run after. Can I just tell you what I've experienced in my life? That's a scary thing. Why would you do that? Why, why wouldn't God just zap their brains and just show them if he wants? Why, why do we need to even get involved? Why can't we just all just keep this private and God will just, you know, drop these little mental things into people's heads and they'll just figure it out? <laughs> right? Why? why? Why do we have to do this? Because God knows that the greatest fulfillment of joy you and I have is when we get to share something that has so thrilled our soul. It's why we love watching sports together. It's why we love watching movies together. It's why we grab each other and say, did you see that? It's why we love bringing someone we love to a restaurant we love. It, it, it's why we love playing a song, the one we sing at the top of our lungs in the car, for someone else. Because 
when they share joy that we have, our joy overflows. There's something about sharing something with another person that has so ripped, gripped our heart that they go, oh, yes. And when they go, yes, something inside of us comes alive, almost even more than the first time we realized it. And God wants you to have that joy. And there's nothing like it. And so let me pray for you because there's two things that will keep you from doing this. One is if you've forgotten how great the love of God is for you. If, if you've forgotten and you've just gotten caught up in living life the way it is and you've forgotten that God sent one to you and that what he gave you and anything else in life, that that'll keep you from, because you don't even remember to tell them. The other thing that will keep you from it is fear. Oh, what if they reject me? What if they think I'm a, like, you know, some of you have people in your family and friends that think you are a fanatical. And maybe because recently you've been starting to go to church more, you're reading your Bible more, you pray, and they're like, well, we're a little bit concerned about you becoming a little bit, you know, more fanatical. Why do you go there all the time? Every week? What's happening there? It's in a movie theater? Have you had to drink any Kool-Aid lately? Like, we're afraid of what other people will think about us, look at us and think, that's just so weird. Why do you do that? Why would you say that? No, oh, Jesus? No, we're past that. E either you've lost sight of it or you're just too afraid. And so I just want to pray for you. And here here's what I want you to do. I know you guys, you don't like when I do this stuff, but if you need prayer for either one of those two things, just stand up. And I'm already standing, okay? And I can tell you it's a little bit of both in my life, but it's probably more fear of what other people will look at me and think, even though they know I'm a minister, right? You think, BJ, what? Like, but sometimes people don't want to know. They just think, okay, don't tell me about your faith. I don't really want to know. So, so I'm standing because I want God to rid me of that fear. But maybe some of you say, you know what? I, I've forgotten how amazing grace is. Or some of you say, well, I'm just too afraid. If that's either of you, would you just stand? And, and I'll just, I just want to pray for you. Yeah, baby, that's it. That's awesome. And the rest of us are just glad because the more people do this, the better the world will be. Let me pray for you and the worship team's going to come and lead us in a final song. Jesus, we thank you for your love for us and it is so amazing. And yet it is so profound that we are almost in danger of missing it, forgetting it, putting it aside. And so I pray for those that maybe have forgotten how amazing grace really is how incredible it is that you have forgiven everything that we have done and will do, how amazing it is that you love us, that no matter what the world thinks about us, you think we are beautiful, valuable, wonderfully made. No matter how much criticism we have heard from other people, you speak words of life, that you don't count our sins against us, and you're the one who loves us, and, and as you say, well, I don't make no junk. And so if we've forgotten how amazing your love, how amazing it is to be able to restart then God, give us a fresh, even this morning, may, may our hearts become alive again and beat with that life of saying, thank you, God, you did this for me. And for those that are, that are afraid, I pray that love would drive out fear, that we would be so consumed with love for other people, that we would not be so selfish as to say, you know what, I'm too afraid of what people will think of me that I won't tell them what God thinks of them. So free us from selfishness. Free us from fear. The message we have is life and hope and forgiveness and meaning and purpose in Jesus. And so open our mouths, open our eyes, open our hearts. And God, at this moment, we just want to thank you that you sent your son for us.
And it's just in his name that we pray. Amen. Just uh, remain standing for the benediction, and then I'm going to invite uh, Nicole to come up, who's going to uh, just pray over all these shoeboxes that you guys have brought in and where, where they're going out uh, in the other parts of the world. I just want to bless you with that that prayer will become kind of part of your morning routine. That when you wake up every morning, instead of worrying about what's going to happen in the day, instead of um, you know, kind of fearing conversations or whatever, just say, God, who, who have you sent me to today? And that, that that would be as normal to you as brushing your teeth in the morning. Hopefully you all do that. <laughs> but that this would be a new routine, spiritual hygiene, if you will. Uh, and that, that would whatever happens in that day, you would be entering it in a, in a different place. Would you receive that blessing?